All right, hello everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Heart of Flesh podcast. Uh, we do have Joshua back with us today. Back in business. Um, so we're excited about that. Uh, so in our last episode, we were we were talking a lot about <coughs> the atheistic worldview, um, kind of what it is, the implications of it, and those kind of things. Um, and and the point the point we we're trying to make is that not just for the Christian, but also for the unbeliever. Um, there is this question of how can we know what we know? Mm-hmm. Um, w- what is the proper epistemology? That's a big word that just is, is describing how do we know what we know? What is the basis for what we know? Mm-hmm. Um, what can we know about the future? Things like that. And, w- and we interacted with the atheistic worldview and um, its inability to answer some some questions and to provide a foundation for the way that... Uh, the way that we know the things that we know and whether or not we can project those things in the future, um, a few different things. And, and the point we're trying to make is is that the Bible and the character of God is a, is a precondition. It, it's presupposed for us to have knowledge of certain things and to make certain claims. Mm-hmm. We can't make certain claims. Um, we can't have, we can't make certain knowledge claims apart from those things. So when we talk about epistemology, how do we know what we know? Um, the Christian would be said to have a revelational epistemology. God reveals it in his creation and in his word. That's how we can know things. That's the basis of our knowledge. Uh, a popular, a very popular guy today, Jordan Peterson, who's actually, you know, I, I don't think he even claims to be a Christian, um, but he was on Joe Rogan's podcast and he, he summarizes this, this basic idea pretty well. Uh, he's talking about the Bible um, and he says this, he says that the Bible is not just true. It's the precondition for the manifestation of truth, right? It's the precondition for the manifestation of truth. It's not just that the Bible says true things, but it's the foundation. The, the Bible and the character of God are the foundation for us to understand truth. The Bible talks about how God himself is truth. Jesus says that he is the way and the truth and the life, not just that the Bible says true things about him, but God is the source of all truth. <clears throat> and that's important for us to know. Yeah. That, I- that is our foundation for making truth claims um, and for believing things. And, and that's where we should go ultimately to justify our beliefs and things. We need to have a foundation. Um, and for the Christian, that is the word of God revealed in Scripture. And when we make certain claims, we need to be standing on the foundation that our worldview allows us to stand on. Mm-hmm. And in the last episode, we talked about the atheistic worldview and, and their foundation being very, very slim and being unable to stand on certain things. So that's a bit of a recap. If you haven't listened to that, uh, we would encourage you to go back and, and listen to that episode. Um, <coughs> and we want to acknowledge, too, that when we're doing that, when we're interacting with other worldviews and we're engaging in apologetics, we want to re- reiterate the point that we don't do, as Christians, we don't do apologetics to win arguments. We don't do apologetics to um, I- inflame our egos or to mm-hmm. boast of our knowledge or anything like that. But the point of all of apologetics is to preach the gospel to people and to see people come to faith in Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. That is the point of apologetics. And, and we get the idea of apologetics from from 1 Peter um, chapter 3. And, and he also says that um, we're, we're to be ready to make a defense for the hope that is in us at all times and to do it with gentleness and respect. Yep. 
So doing apologetics should come from a spirit of, of love for people um, and, and hope for their salvation. And that's why we interact with these worldviews. Um, we try to show that, in fact, people are in need of Christ, that, that their worldviews are inconsistent, um, and we want to show them that they need Christ, mm-hmm. right? <clears throat> and, that, and our goal in that is not to win an argument, but to share with them the gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and if you're unfamiliar with what we mean, when we say the term gospel, I think most people have heard that word. Mm-hmm. Um, most people think of it as the four books in the Bible that tell the, the historical narratives about Jesus. Um, but the gospel, the meaning of the word has a deeper meaning in itself in the Greek. Um, originally, what it means is it means good news. Mm-hmm. So, th- so the narratives were given that, that name because they convey the good news of salvation in Christ. Mm-hmm. Joshua, is there anything you want to add to that at all? Um, <coughs> not to the term gospel specifically. Um, no, I'm just thinking like we kind of jumped right right into this, but one of the reasons were, I mean, you last uh, episode talked about engaged with atheism, and, and today we're going to do a little bit more of a maybe a theological or a philosophical foundation for like what is our epistemology, w- how can we know what is truth. Um, this is going to be a little bit more of a thinking episode. Uh, we're going to be going through scripture, yes, not as much as we did the second episode, but we think these things are absolutely important to think about, to actually wrestle with, because um, if you're a Christian and you haven't thought about these things that we're going to discuss, how are you going to answer when someone really starts poking at your belief in the Bible? Mm-hmm. And I think f- sometimes what happens is people start poking at that and people get like, oh my gosh, the Bible isn't true. I was told a lie the whole time I was in church. Uh, and that's just not true because we have an epistemology, a firm one to stand on. Um, and if we're non-Christians, uh, it's important we we engage with these things as well. Um, because if you don't believe in the word of God, you cannot, in the Bible, as truth, you cannot believe in Christ. You can't believe in what he said, mm-hmm. uh, what God revealed himself to be in scripture. But um, the gospel, you should share it because this is why we're doing this podcast, right? Yeah. Um, so <coughs> on top of that, just to add to what Joshua said, it's important that we know these things. We're going to talk a little bit today about about um, the canon of scripture. We'll get into that. And it's important that we know these things because as Christians, we are called to to live on mission and to live as evangelists wherever we're at and to share Christ with people. Um, the, the command from the Great Commission is to make disciples of all nations and teach them to obey, uh, to obey all that I have commanded. Um, and, and sometimes we, to do that, we interact a lot with people of different worldviews and they have questions mm-hmm. and, and we need to be equipped to answer them. Um, so it, it is important for the Christian that they understand their worldview and understand their faith. And they, re- they r- are reminded that the point of doing that, once again, is not to win arguments, but to preach the gospel. And the gospel is really a simple thing. Um, it, it can be boiled down very <coughs> simply. <coughs> and there's a few things you need to understand about the gospel. First of all, you need to understand that you and all people have sinned against God and are breakers of God's law and deserving of God's wrath. And, and that the, the just punishment of all sin is death. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. What the, what the sinner deserves for his sin is death and spiritual separation from God. That's what the sinner deserves. 
So those two things, the, the, the doctrine of sin need to be understood. Um, the punishment that is owed to the sinner needs to be understood. And then thirdly, the good news that comes is that Jesus, the God-man, the second person of the Trinity, has come, has, has lived the perfect life as a human, and <coughs> both truly God and truly man, and he went to the cross to take our punishment as our substitute. He stood in our place. He bore the wrath of God that our sins deserved mm-hmm. in order that we might be that we might be saved, um, that we might be <coughs> adopted into the family of God, that we might be justified in the sight of God. Um, and and that that comes about in a person's life. We are we are saved by faith in Christ. Um, by the grace of God given to us by faith in Christ. Ephesians 2.8 is a good example. It says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. Um, it is a gift of God apart from works so that no one may boast. So we're saved by faith apart from works. We're saved by the grace of God. We're saved not of ourselves, but as a gift of God so that there is no room to boast before God. One One common way to um, describe the gospel is there, there's there's a great exchange that happens at the cross mm-hmm. um, when the sinner has has faith in Christ um, that there's an exchange that goes on and a word that's commonly used to describe this is imputation mm-hmm. imputation that's a big word but <coughs> I'll explain it here in a minute so what Christ did in paying for sin uh, and, and us when we have true and genuine faith in Christ um, our sins are imputed to Christ. So they belong to him. He paid he is he has paid he paid for them. And in return, well first of all there there's no sin that is left to us. There's no punishment for our sin. Romans Romans 8 there's therefore now no condemnation for anyone that is in Christ Jesus. Mm-hmm. And second of all, there's another part of that exchange that happens and this is kind of 2 Corinthians 5 521 Paul talks about it in Philippians 3 there's a number of spots but the righteousness of Christ is credited to us so our sins are credited they're imputed to Christ they belong to him in God's eyes mm-hmm. and his righteousness his record of good works his record of of a perfect life is imputed to us so our sins go to him his righteousness comes to us. That That is why it's called the great exchange, and it is a great exchange, and that's what mm-hmm. the Bible teaches about, about salvation. Yep. It says that we are saved by the grace of God through faith in Christ. Um, when we are saved, the, the exchange happens where our sins are imputed to Christ. The righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. True salvation always is accompanied um, with works, as, as James talks about it, and it is accompanied with repentance. You cannot separate repentance from the gospel and it comes with regeneration of heart um god gives a new heart to his people this is called the heart of flesh podcast that comes Mm -hmm. from ezekiel 36 and that was a promise of god that (coughs) when god saves someone he gives them his spirit and he gives them a new heart that is what it means to be saved Mm -hmm. um and if you're from you know if if you're listening to this and you've grown up in a more traditional background um you have probably heard something different you've probably heard that and maybe not explicitly, but the way the way that it's understood is that if you get baptized when you're a kid and if you go to church in your life and if you are somehow live a good life, air quotes, mm-hmm. whatever that means, that that means that you are saved. That, mean, that means that you're right with God and that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible does not teach that. 
The Bible teaches that we are saved through genuine faith in Christ and only by the cross of Christ. That is how we're saved Mm -hmm. because Jesus took our sin on himself and he gave us his righteousness. We are clothed in his righteousness. So when we stand before God, there's no sin that belongs to us. There's only the righteousness of Christ. (coughs) Um, So that is a quick explanation of the gospel. And and as we, we want to reiterate as well, before we start this episode, the problem, once again, the problem that exists for the unbeliever is not that there's a lack of evidence for the existence of God. The Bible is clear that all people know God. The attributes of God are are clearly perceived since God has created the world. um, And they are clearly perceived in man's being made in the image of God. But the problem is the nature of man. And the nature of man is that he is born in original sin. The problem that exists is sin. The Bible says that for all people, um, you can either be in Adam or in Christ. The New Testament uses that term a lot, in Christ. Um, 1 Corinthians 15.22, Paul talks about in Adam all die. The sin of Adam in Genesis 3 has brought about judgment on the human race and on the world. And every person born of Adam, a descendant of Adam, is subject to original sin, right? Is subject to original sin. So every person can either be in Adam, which means that you are, in in biblical terms, and Paul used this language, you are in rebellion against God, suppressing the truth about God. Mm-hmm. It means that you are at war with God. You are exchanging the truth about God for a lie. That's all from Romans 1. John 3 talks about those who, who do not believe remain. The, it says the wrath of God remains on them. So you are under God's wrath. You, your sin, your sin has not, is not belonging to Christ. It belongs to you. And, and that's, that's a terrible reality. But the justice of God requires punishment for sin. That's why in order for us to be saved, that's why Christ had to come and die for our sin. So to be in Adam is to be at war with God, exchanging the truth about God. It says that we are enemies of God in Romans 5. And in Romans 8, it says, Romans 1 and Romans 8, it says we are haters of God. Mm-hmm. And we, we refuse to submit to God's sovereign rule. We refuse to f- submit to his authority. We do not acknowledge God as the Lord of our lives. Um, but we acknowledge ourselves as our own gods Mm -hmm. and we serve created things rather than the creator. We serve idols and not the true God. That's what it means to be an Adam. Mm -hmm. But for the Christian, for, for the, for the born again, Christian believer, the new Testament over and over again, Paul uses this language that you are in Christ. You can either be in Adam, which is what we've previously described, or you can be in Christ. And if you are in Christ, then you've been justified by faith. You are at peace with God. You are adopted into God's family. Ephesians 2 says you have been, it says you were dead in the sins and transgressions transgressions in which you walked. You were in Adam. And then it says, but God made you alive in Christ, Mm -hmm. in Christ and seated you in the heavenly places with Christ. So you've been made alive. You've been born again. You have a new heart, new spirit, John 10 says you are held in the hand of the Father and that nothing can take you out of that spot. Um, And that's when the New Testament, 
talks about what it, it says in Christ everywhere. That, that term is all over. That's what it means. That's what it means to be in Christ. So there are, there are and we've talked about this before too, um, Paul often contrasts the natural man and the spiritual man. So there's the person who lives with the spirit of God and then there's the person who lives in the flesh or as the natural man. And there is a difference between those two. And the difference is those things that we've described. Um, the one in Christ has a new heart that delights in God, has a love for God, and repents of sin, lives a repentant lifestyle. Joshua, anything? Yeah, you're spitting fire here. Um, but one thing I just want to, again, make explicitly clear, these are binary categories. There's no other option. There's not a middle ground in between these of, hey, I'm partially in Adam and I'm partially in Christ. That's not how it works. And so for our listeners, uh, we would ask you to consider who are you in? If you have not made a decision to follow Christ, to recognize your need for his work on the cross, to bear your sins because you are at war with God, if you have not done that yet and repented and put your faith in Christ's work, you are in Christ. And this moment... You are in Adam. All right, you are yep. in Adam. This moment, you are at war with God. Yeah. That's a scary thing. You are at war with an almighty God who has wrath and indignation towards those who sin against him. Mm-hmm. But the good news is that Christ's salvation is offered to all people. And in this moment, it is offered to you as well. So that's a little bit um, of an intro. Uh, that's why we do apologetics is we want people to understand that. Mm-hmm. We don't want to win arguments. Um, we want people who are at war with God who are in Adam to be in Christ. Mm-hmm. We we want to see them in heaven. We want to see people saved and people that know and love God and that turn away from sin and from evil. Mm-hmm. We want to see those things. That's why we do apologetics and that's why we interact with worldviews. Okay, so I think we should jump into our topic for the podcast today. Um, we're going to be talking about the canon of Scripture. Um, and if you're not familiar with that word, the canon of Scripture... Um, just to give a definition of it, when we talk about canonicity, the, the canon is the list of the books that belong in the Bible. Mm-hmm. So the Bible is made of, of 66 books, um, and there's some debate about that. We're going to talk about that. The Roman Catholic Church is going to take a different view on that, and we're going to get into those things. Mm-hmm. But the Bible is made of <coughs> 66 books. And when we're talking about canon, canon or canonicity, the question is how can we know that these books contain... God's word and that they're the right books. Mm-hmm. How do we know which books are canonical, th- that they belong in the Bible? That's what it means to talk about the canon of Scripture. The canon I- is the complete work. Um, it's, it's the collection, the corpus of, of all of the books that are contained inside the Bible themselves. So when we're talking about the canon or canonicity, the question is, how are we understanding um, these these canonical books and which ones are in there and do we have the right ones Mm -hmm. that that's another thing so what we're going to do is we're going to talk about some different models um that are that are given um when when christians or or theologians try to answer this question and what we're going to see as we talk about this is that some of the models for understanding this are going to step outside of the christian worldview they're going to look for neutrality and they're going to try to argue from that and and 
you know, we've talked about this before. We don't believe that there is a possible position of neutrality. Mm-hmm. Um, f- for people approaching the Bible, you're approaching it either in Adam or in Christ. Mm-hmm. A- and those are two completely different different things. Um, so some some models and, and some models even even that are used by many very solid Christian theologians are going to do that. And we think there's some problems with that, but, but we're going to talk about a number of different models for trying to understand this question. And our hope once again is to give you a foundation when someone asks this question or where you engage with this and and even just for assurance in your own heart Mm, of, do we have the right books? Is our Bible that we have today, is is it accurately containing God's word? Mm -hmm. Right. Joshua, anything? Yeah, I think that's great. And I think hopefully this is going to be really cool because it's likely that most of our listeners are going to, uh, they won't be able to put these things to words, but they're going to be like, hey, that's that's kind of what I believe. I believe in the um, community-driven model. That's kind of how my mind has worked or in the historical model. And hopefully some will believe in the, is it the presuppositional model or what's it called? Self-attestation. 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 Whatever. <laughs> um, so hopefully this will be um, good for your guys' hearts because one of the questions I asked in the past like year is, how do I know the Bible I have is true? How do I know this is the true canon? How can I be assured of that? Yeah, so uh, I think before we get started too, we're going to, again, um, we're going to talk about the presuppositions that we have from the Christian worldview um, before we even get into this discussion because there are things that we believe about the Bible obviously before we even approach this topic Mm -hmm. Um, and first of all we believe that God and men as we talked about in our second episode God and men wrote the books of scripture Mm -hmm. God and men are the authors of it ultimately God um, in in another sense men Um, but, but both God and men are considered authors of the books of scripture. If you want more info on that, go back and listen to our second episode about the authority of God's word. Mm -hmm. We are also assuming the providence of God. We are assuming God's providence. Ephesians 1.11 says that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. We believe that God is sovereign over history, that he, he is omnipotent, that he accomplishes what he pleases in history um, and in his creation. And that includes the writing, the recording, and the exposing of Scripture to his people. Yeah, so he didn't just set things in motion and let the rock roll down the hill. Right. That's that's not what we're saying. What we're saying is he's in control of the whole process of setting things in motion and making sure the means come to pass in order for us to have the Bible. Yeah, he's sovereign over the ends or over the beginnings, over the ends and over the means. Mm-hmm. He's sovereign over, over all aspects of, of how the Bible was written, preserved and, and exposed to to his people. Mm-hmm. And um, we were also presupposing the character of God that is revealed in the Bible um, and a God that desires to reveal himself through his creation. And he desires to reveal himself through his word specifically. And he desires for his word to accomplish things. And we mentioned this passage in one of our other episodes, but Isaiah 55, 10, and 11 summarizes this well. 
And God says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So that that is a, a rather good summary of what we are understanding about God's word as we even enter this discussion of canonicity. So as we as we jump into it, <clears throat> there are a few different types of models. Um, one thing just to clarify before we even start any of this, uh, we owe, we are very much indebted uh, to the work of, of My- Dr. Michael Kruger on this subject. Um, he's a he is a professor at Reformed Theological Seminary. Um, I think he's in the Charlotte one. I can't remember. Uh, But he is one of the world's best scholars on this question of of canon. And he's just actually an exceptional Bible teacher in general. Mm -hmm. Um, You would do yourself a favor to look up Michael Kruger and to listen to him teach the Bible. He is extremely, extremely gifted. Mm -hmm. um, And and he he, he knows the Bible very well and teaches it very well. We have been, both of us personally, very blessed Mm -hmm. by him. Um, But so when we talk about much of this we're getting we're getting from his work um, but when we talk about the, the models of canonicity there are really three ways to look at it there are community driven models historically driven models and then the self-authenticating model so we're going to kind of talk about those um, each on their own so first the the community driven model um, we're talking a bit w- one of the models that we're going to look at there's multiple within this category. But the first one we're going to look at is the historical critical model. Um, it is a model that is, for understanding canonicity, that is uh, very much loved by by liberal scholarship. Um, very much loved by liberal, liberal scholarship. And the idea basically is this. The historical community that, li- like for example... Israel in the Old Testament and, and, and remaining Israel, the, the New Testament writers were also Jewish, even though mm-hmm. some Gentiles were in there, but, but they were within Jewish circles. But the historical community um, that was involved dis- decides and puts together, a- and they're, they're the ones that make the parameters for what is the canon and which books belong in the Bible, mm-hmm. right? So it, it's, it's the community that decides what makes a book canonical, is the community's opinion about it and it's placing it as canonical. And the first problem with this um, is that it, it, it removes, it, it, it takes a step out of the Christian worldview. It, it does not, it, it actually, instead of assuming God's providence, it actually removes the idea of God's providence and makes the canon a strictly human enterprise. It makes the writing of the Bible, um, the preservation of the Bible, it makes it a strictly human enterprise. And that, that I mean, you, you can see pretty quickly why that is a model that is used by liberal scholars is because you get rid, you, you get rid of the Christian worldview and you try to look at the canon from the perspective, what, what they would say neutrality, we would argue against that, mm-hmm. um, but you take away any role that God has in, in canonicity and establishing the canon or in writing the Bible in gen- at all. 
and you look at it strictly from a human perspective. And the problem with that is that the, the Bible in itself very much and it very clearly shows that not only is God primarily responsible for authoring these books, but for preserving them and for showing them clearly to be his word. Joshua? Yeah, I'd just say that it opens it opens a door for chaos, right? Like you're essentially now looking at like what was the emotional state, the motivation behind these writers of scriptures. And whenever that comes into question, you can change it however you want. And so if we don't, if people don't like that or they don't want the, the writing of say the book of John, or I mean, we could do any book in the new Testament to be close to the first century. They can basically find any way they want to make it go back to the fifth century mm-hmm. or the beginning of the uh, year 400 AD. Like, you can move it around all you want, and there's r- you can wrap it up in objectivity and say, "Oh, here, here's all this empirical evidence, historical evidence," and it's like, what's what's actually happening is you're you're defining what you want the canon to be and when books were written for your own purposes, mm-hmm. and that's why we say neutrality is impossible. Yeah. Well, really, really, what's going on is that you're you're taking a naturalistic perspective, mm-hmm. so Which, you're yeah. approaching you're approaching the canon, you're approaching the Bible from a naturalistic presupposition and your naturalistic presupposition automatically automatically um takes authority over any claim that the bible makes about its authorship about its preservation about any of those things Mm -hmm. so you you automatically start from a place of um of, of removing the the authority within the book itself and the inherent canonicity that the books have and you turn this into an entirely human enterprise um and and this is certainly a a bad model for understanding the canon um but what is important to note is that this doesn't this doesn't not have value it is important for us to understand jewish culture it's important for us to understand greco-roman culture and in the time period that the bible was written those things are important we do want to study those but to approach approach canonicity from this perspective from a naturalistic perspective leads to wrong conclusions and it disagrees with the internal evidence that the bible says about itself um so there is some problems with it now we don't want to throw it out entirely obviously we welcome empirical evidence Mm -hmm. in in any studying of scripture we do welcome that um but this method of looking at the can at the canon is one that that I, I think actually I think a lot of people do implicitly, mm-hmm. but it is one that makes it an entirely human enterprise. It, like we said, it removes God from the equation, and it looks solely at men alone as the author of the Bible, and men is responsible for um, preserving and writing the Bible and for deciding which books are canonical. Mm-hmm. Men are the ones ultimately who decide which books are canonical, and there is no inherent canonicity in them. So the importance of that, too, is like today, for example, we would say that we have a closed canon. There's no more books being added to the Bible. The canon is closed. But what's important to understand is when you take this perspective, a book is not canonical until the community declares it to be. And really until the community declares that the canon is closed and somehow then some sort of special authority is added back to the book afterwards Mm -hmm. the community decides that it's canonical and then it has the authority 
But when we presented um, the authority of God's word in, in our second episode, what's clear is that the Bible and the books of the Bible function as God's word immediately upon their authorship. Mm-hmm. It was understood immediately that these books are canonical, so to speak, that they have authority and that they function as God's word. It is not that at some later point the community decides that the books were canonical and then they gain some sort of authority or they gain some attribute of canonicity that then now we agree, right? Or or the, some, some authority is added back to the book. But as we see immediately the books the books were seen clearly clearly seen and clearly proclaim to be the very words of god and that is what makes them canonicity and we're going to we're going to touch on that a, a bit later too yeah, um i'll say one thing here too uh so we're talking about the community driven model and what the one that we're talking about right now under that category is the historical critical model uh, but really any community driven model breeds distrust into the Bible because as we've stated over and over again now, it is a human enterprise of people choosing which books are in our Bibles. So, okay, just think about this for a second. Do you trust humans to get that right? When you start looking at all the evidence and you have all these different options, like what happens is it breeds distrust that this is the word of God. And this I think is maybe one of the most important things why this isn't a good model because it breeds distrust in the Bible. Mm-hmm. And, and it takes a step outside of the Christian worldview mm-hmm. and outside of, of biblical presuppositions to try to discuss the canon. Um, and, and it makes a great error in doing so. It actually misses the internal witness of Scripture attesting that it is not primarily a human enterprise it is a, it is a divine enterprise it is god that is working in this um so that is one community driven model the historical critical model that's one that's often used by liberal scholars to try to understand canonicity um there's another model that this actually is is probably another very prevalent model mm-hmm. um when we say community driven model what that means is that the the community of people that are involved are the ones that establish and decide canonicity of books and that's important like we said because it removes the inherent canonicity of the books themselves it removes the fact that they are clearly understood and perceived to be god's very words and immediately authoritative Mm -hmm. so when we talk about this next community driven model (coughs) they're essentially doing the same thing and we're going to talk about this it's going to be the roman catholic model is what it's called. The Roman Catholic Church has a different understanding of how books are canonical um, than than what we would say. And really what it is, it's a community-driven model. The church is the one who decides, they decide, they give canonicity to the books. They are the community that decides that the books are canonical. And as we talked about in our, in our second episode, Um, We talked about the authority of God's word, how God's word must be the highest authority and how it clearly and it clearly presupposes itself to be. It is the word of God and and it immediately assumes a place of ultimate authority. And the Roman Catholic Church disagrees with that. Mm -hmm. Um, God's revealed word is not the highest authority. Um, They would they would dispute that. But but in reality, what what they teach is that they have a, a threefold authority structure 
and I'm not going to get into all of this, um, but they would say that scripture along with tradition and along with the magisterium are the, their trifold authority structure. So it's not just, it's not just that God's word is the highest authority. Um, and, and actually, in fact, I would argue that it's not mm-hmm. because I would argue that the tradition that they espouse and, and, and the teachings of the magisterium are clearly in contradiction with plain teachings of scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't need to get into all of those things. Uh, well, a few of them, for example, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that the act of baptism in itself saves. Now, they would teach that you can lose that salvation, but they would say that the act of baptism in itself justifies a person before God and saves them. That is clearly something that's not taught in the Bible. They believe that the Eucharist is the place where you receive grace from God, where grace is handed out, essentially piecemeal. Mm-hmm. Um, <coughs> that is another clear error that, that, that disagrees with Scripture. Um, and, and they essentially teach the idea that the church and, and or the priest is the mediator between God and men, um, that you must go to a priest, that you must confess your sins to a priest, and this is how the, the guilt of your sin is removed. Um, the, the church ha- has essentially the, the ability the p- and, and the power to remove sin from the sinner, and it's the priest acting as another Christ. That's, that's what a term that they that the Catholic Church uses in describing its priests when they're ordained. Um, it says that they are another Christ. I can't remember what the Latin word is, um, but they have the ability to, it, in the act of confession, when someone confesses sin to them, to, to remove the guilt of sin. And the Bible clearly teaches, you know, 1 Timothy 2.5, 2, there is one Lord and there is one mediator between God and man, and it's the man Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. God, Jesus is our mediator. He's the one that, that intercedes and stands between God and men and reconciles the two parties. It is not the priest acting in the place of Jesus. Um, so from that sense, we would argue, and that's just a few examples, but we would argue that there are many places where the tradition of the Catholic Church clearly differs from the, the plain teaching of Scripture. And therefore, well, one, you can't have three ultimate authorities. No. You can have one ultimate authority. Mm-hmm. Um, that really doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, but, but this issue, their authority structure bleeds over, um, into their understanding of canonicity. And basically, just like in the other historical critical model, um, the canon is derivative of the community. In this Mm -hmm. case, for the Roman Catholic Church, the canon is derivative of the church, right? It is, it is, the church is the one that decides canonicity, um, it is the one that actually declares the books to be canonical. Uh, and we would say that this is clearly a misunderstanding. The books ought, were functioning as God's word already. They, have, they, have a, a, they are self-authenticating. They don't need an external authenticator. And, you know, this is why you, you hear, you know, you interact with a lot of Catholics and you hear this. I've heard this phrase, like, I don't know how many times I've heard this, but they say that Catholics are the ones who gave us the Bible, mm-hmm. um, as as if the, the Catholic Church, as 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 if they're the ones who decide that the books are canonical, that they're the ones that give authority to the books, not that the books have authority in themselves, 
but that the church must give them authority, right? They decide which books are canonical and which books have the authority. And, and that, as we're going to see, there is a number of problems with that idea. And, and the first one is that the evidence of the New Testament itself, the internal evidence clearly says the opposite. First of all, um, before there was even, even the idea of a Catholic church, uh, or, or I, I should say, the Roman Catholic Church, there's a difference between the Catholic Church and the Roman Catholic mm -hmm. Church. The Catholic Church just means universal church. Um, that would be the, the church describing all true believers, but there is specifically the Roman Catholic Church, um, the church we know today to be the, the Catholic Church as it names itself. Um, but in, within the New Testament, the, the internal evidence is clearly the opposite. First of all, the New Testament authors, before any idea of the Roman Catholic Church, they clearly had an established understanding of what the canon is. They had a canon. They had the Old Testament. And they did not, th there was no, there was no authority outside of those books that said, okay, these books are God's word. It wasn't, it wasn't th that the Jewish culture said these books are God's word and we're deciding that, um, which, first of all, would be different than the Roman Catholic Church anyway, and they're saying that they are the ones who decide the canonicity of the books. But the books clearly had authority from the beginning. They had clearly had inherent canonicity, and there was no disputes about the Old Testament canon. There was no disputes about it, especially in the, in, in the period where the New Testament authors wrote the New Testament. The New Testament authors quote every single book of the Old Testament, and it's clearly seen to be God's word. It's clearly understood that when they are writing or when they are what they are quoting from when they quote the old testament is that they are quoting god's word mm -hmm. that that these books had the authority of god they the 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 new testament church in the first century they had an established canon already and it was the highest authority and they made their arguments from it they referred to it they did they did many things and they and what's another interesting thing the, the Roman Catholic Church also, you know, we're going to discuss this maybe at a later point, but they have, I'm sure most of you are aware of this, but they have an extra, I can't remember how many books it is, but they have, uh, between the period of, um, I can't remember what the last book of the Bible of, of the Old Testament is, Malachi, I think Ezra and Nehemiah were really written the latest, but between about 420 B.C. and the time when the New Testament books were written in the early, mid, mid mid late first century they have added a number of books and they have decided that a number of books from between that period were canonical and that's why they have extra books the catholic bible has more books than than if, if you open a protestant bible will have and, and we're going to touch on that in a later episode but the importance i want to make here is that the new testament authors in the, in the new testament they quote every single book of the old testament every single book that the protestant bible has they do not make one single quote to any book that is apocryphal, to a, to any of the books that are that the Catholic Bible has added to its Old Testament. The New Testament authors directly reference every single Old Testament book um, that is in the Protestant Bible. They they make n zero references, not a single reference is made to an apocryphal book, not a single one that is in that has been added to the Roman Catholic Bible. Um, so that that is very telling and it's very problematic in itself. Um, it is a bit besides the point, though. Um, the, the point being that when the New Testament authors wrote, 
The Roman Catholic Church as we know it today was not in existence, and they clearly had they they had an understanding of the Old Testament as canonical, as being God's word, as having authority. They did not need a church um, external to the biblical witness to say, okay, these books are authoritative and canonical because we say so. The books already functioned that way. Mm-hmm. And that is just, that's very important to understand. Um, and, and there's another problem. Like we've talked about, the Roman Catholic model says that the church establishes the apostolic witness. When we talk about the New Testament, we talk about the apostolic witness. And the Roman Catholic model says that the church is the one that establishes the apostolic witness. And the problem with that is that when you read Ephesians 2, when you read Ephesians chapter 2, it actually says exactly the opposite. The Roman Catholic model says the church establishes the apostolic witness, and Ephesians 2 says that the apostolic witness establishes the church. The Roman Catholic model says that says that the the church is is primarily responsible for giving authority to the apostolic witness and Paul clearly says in Ephesians 2 that the church is built on the foundation of the apostolic witness. Joshua are you th- are you there? Would no. you mind reading that? Okay. I'm at Revelation. Okay. Uh Ephesians 2:20. You can read that Revelation verse 2. Yeah, another verse <coughs> that says something similar to this is Revelation 21:14. It says and the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the ni- 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Um, and this is, it's a stated a little bit more clearly in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, but basically John is having a vision here, and he's seeing that the foundation of God's church, essentially, was the 12 apostles. It was not, it was not the Roman Catholic Church. It wasn't anyone else. It was the 12 apostles. Yeah, and looking at Ephesians 2 here, in Ephesians 2, Paul is is talking about and he's describing um, the church being built up of Jew and Gentile uh, coming together to be one body. And, and in verse 20, he says, uh, actually go back verse 19, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, the church. And in verse 20, it says, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Paul is describing the church of God. He's describing all of God's people in the church. And in verse 20 he says that it is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And that Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone. And what Paul is saying, by saying that the the church is built on the apostolic witness, that the church is what the Roman Catholic model is saying is that the church establishes the apostolic witness and Paul is saying that the ap- that the church is built upon the apostolic witness, that it is the apostolic witness that has the authority, that is the ultimate authority, and that the church is built on top of that and from that, not that the church decides and, and gives authority to the apostolic witness, but it's the other way around. The, the Catholic church has it flipped they have the authority structure flipped. They have the church as the highest authority and and the word of God subservient to the church. And the clear testament of scripture, and especially in Ephesians 2, 
is that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and the prophets. And further, in understanding this model as well, the the implication behind this is the Catholic Church didn't give an official official list of their canonical books until the Council of Trent post-Reformation in the 16th century. That's when the Catholic Church officially declared their final form of the canon. And the reason that's problematic is because if they say that they're the ones who establish the Bible and that they're the ones who give canonicity to the books, then that would automatically imply that those books did not have inherent canonicity until they were officially established as such by the church in the 16th century. And that is extremely problematic. Mm-hmm. And what it creates, you know, there, there's the, the, the famous reformed doctrine of sola scriptura, which is that scripture alone is the highest authority. And really the Roman Catholic doctrine is the church alone. There can't be a sharing of, of highest authority. They have clearly put themselves placed themselves and exalted themselves above the word of God. And they're saying that the books have no authority in themselves, but that they need an external standard. They say that scripture is not self-authenticating. It doesn't authenticate itself, but it needs an external standard. And that's what the church is. And what's interesting about that is if scripture is not self-authenticating, there's something that has to be. There is something that there has to be circularity in the highest authority. It is not a highest authority unless it is circular. And the Catholic Church has removed the Bible as the highest authority and they have put themselves in its place. They have put the church in its place. So they're saying that the very thing that Scripture cannot be, Scripture cannot have inherent canonicity. It needs an external standard. That's what they say. They, they say it has to have an external standard. It cannot be self-authenticating. And the very thing that they are saying that Scripture cannot be, they are saying that they are. They are the authority that Scripture cannot be. And that is extremely problematic. And I believe that that, is that, that in itself is what has led to um, the, the errors in doctrine, the mm-hmm. clear errors in doctrine and the clear differences between what Scripture teaches and what the Catholic Church officially teaches as doctrine. There, there are some great differences between the two. And I've, I've, it has come from the understanding that the church is the highest authority and has no need to submit itself to God's word. It has no need to place itself under the authority of God's word, but it actually places itself over the authority of God's word. And, and the, an, another doctrine they hold to is that the magisterium is the official teaching office of the church. It wasn't really established until the 19th century. Um, and during the, the papacy of Pope Pius the ninth, uh, around 1870. But th- they even teach that, that the, the magisterium is the, the teaching office of the church, which has the capacity to give infallible in- interpretation. They have the, they have the ability to put forth infallible doctrine that, um, the Pope himself, when he speaks ex cathedra, that's a, another Latin term, but when he speaks ex cathedra, that he can speak infallibly and absolutely authoritatively. He in himself has absolute authority when he decides to speak ex cathedra. The Bible, th- they don't say that the Bible has absolute authority, but they say that the, p- the Pope, 
And, and if you know the, the current Pope, this may make you chuckle a bit. And uh, that's not to be mean, but like he, mm-hmm. he, he is a bit difficult to understand and difficult to interpret sometimes. He, it's hard to tell what he believes. Uh, you know, if you listen to him, you, you'd honestly, you'd be more inclined to believe that he's a universalist than anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, but they say that the Pope has the authority to speak infallibly and to quiet all dissension or discussion about an issue, to give infallible doctrine. But the, 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 the words of God do not have that. Only the words of the Pope have that. So it's, it's very problematic. Um, as we move on, um, that those are just a couple examples of community-driven models. There are a few others, um, even more liberal-type ones, um, that are really bad. I don't think we're going to touch on any of those. No. Uh, I think let's, well, there's, um, the other, the second type of model. So the first one we did is community driven models. Um, the next one is historically determined models. And the one we're going to talk about is the, the criteria of canonicity model. And this one is actually, it's actually a much better model. It's probably the most popular today amongst any sort of evangelical scholars when understanding canonicity mm-hmm. Joshua you want to give us some insight yes so <coughs> historically driven models uh, they kind of have or specifically the criteria for canonicity model uh, kind of puts forth some um, criteria for what evidences can we look for in these books to make sure there's scripture to say, okay, it fits this, checks this off. Yep. 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 Must be, it must be part of the canon. Um, and I think the biggest thing, which we would actually, we would actually find great agreement on this point, but one of the biggest, uh, check marks a book has to have is apostolicity, or it has to be written by an apostle, uh, or the author has to have like a close contact with an apostle. Yeah. Um, so on understanding this model, it's the criteria of canonicity model. And basically, basically the idea is that if the book possesses certain attributes, if it meets certain criteria, then that makes it canonical. And like you said, Joshua, the biggest one is, is apostolicity. It's basically who's the author, who's writing this. Is it an apostolic? Is it someone who is known to be an apostle? Um, mm-hmm. is it someone who is known to be a prophet in the old Testament, mm-hmm. for example, um, and, and th- that becomes, w- the idea is that we, the p- and, and this, is, and this is really the best view that we've discussed so far. There are many yep. positives to this view. Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing that it does is like we talk about a lot, it, it tries to assume neutrality and th- to argue based on the evidence. Mm-hmm. And you know, that, you know, you, you read and, and you study someone who's understanding the canon from this model. And they make very persuasive arguments for why we have the books of the Bible that we do. There is very strong historical evidence for why we have the books of the Bible that we do. Um, There's the criteria of apostolicity. Um, There's the criteria of orthodoxy. Is it orthodox? Is it teaching something contradictory to the rest of Scripture? Um, We understand that Scripture has no contradictions, uh, that that it teaches the whole counsel of God and that it's God's words and therefore it's true and inerrant. Every part of it is, is true. So that, that's another criteria, apostolicity and and orthodoxy. Um, Another one is like essentially popularity and usage. Mm -hmm. How much was it known and how much was it used? 
another criteria is when was it written? What's the date? Mm-hmm. Um, things like that. And there are some positives to this. Uh, you know, historicity obviously matters. It's important to understand these things. It's extremely important to understand these things. Mm-hmm. But the, the problem comes when we are making, um, we when, when we understand canon this way and we say that canonical books if they meet this certain criteria, then they are canonical. The problem with that is that it places, once again, the authority outside of the canon itself. Mm-hmm. It says that the books are not canonical in themselves, but if we determine that they meet certain criteria of canonicity, then we ascribe the attribute of canonicity to them. If they meet the historical evidence, um, and, and honestly, what that turns into today is if they meet the historical evidential standards of modern skeptical <coughs> scholarship yep. l- and, and even liberal scholarship, um, which removes all the presu- Christian presuppositions that are found in the Bible, seeks to look at things neutrally, which, again, we argue that there is no neutrality in this, um, and and tries to determine the canonicity of the books based on that criteria so that that uh, uh, like again it, it sees the books of the canon as not having inherent canonicity in themselves it subjects the books of the canon to scholarly consensus right not to the character of god mm-hmm. it subjects the canon to scholarly sentient scholarly consensus which is problematic because scholarly consensus can change Mm-hmm. And right now, it, it's e- even amongst liberal scholars, the 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 assumption is pretty clear. The consensus is that the books that we have of, of the Bible meet canonical standards. They meet. Mm-hmm. They do meet the criteria. You can make very strong arguments from this perspective. But critical scholarship can change. Critical scholarship can come to different opinions. Um, it can come to different conclusions in the future. There's no guarantee that the consensus of critical scholarship is going to be the same in the future. And if we adopt this model, if we understand the books of the Bible this way, then what we're doing is we are we are allowing or we are subjecting ourselves to the possibility of a change in critical scholarship and critical scholarly consensus raising further questions about canonicity. If we adopt this model, then essentially if... If the scholarly consensus changes, then we no longer have a solid foundation for canonicity. We we no longer have a solid foundation to say that we know these books are God's word mm-hmm. um, yep. because they ultimately don't rest on God or his character or their inherent canonicity. They rest on the evidence um, and the evidential conclusions of critical scholarship. Yeah, and I think, so part of the discussion too about <coughs> what is the canon, what's the Bible, the discussion today is not so much of, is the Bible true or not? Frankly, people don't care enough about that. The discussion today is, uh, is so the discussion about what is the canon, can we know it, um, is more around de jure objections. And what that means is that the Christian belief in the canon should be rejected because it has no rational basis. That's where the argument is structured around right now. There's, there's not enough... Um, well, people would argue that maybe we can do some criteria like we just talked about and maybe find out what the, <coughs> what the scriptures are, what the canon is. But the discussion about canonicity is not whether it's, 
whether the Bible is true or false. It's about essentially, do we have a rational belief to even consider something as canon mm-hmm. or something as truly the Bible? Um, and we're going to get now to the self-authenticating model, which is going to bring in our presuppositions and yeah. show that there is there is rational reasons for why we can believe this is the canon. Yeah. Well, and, and even, you know, when we, when we talk about, when we talk about canonicity and that objection, first of all, that objection um, immediately throws out the character of God and any sort <coughs> of involvement in this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the truth is without the character of God, without, um, without the presuppositions that we have about, about God's character and about his purposes to save and to, to, ex- to write, preserve and expose his people to his word, we ultimately really don't have a rational basis for, for believing that these books are canonical. We really don't. Um, but we argue from a place and a foundation of God's character, which is unchanging and omnipotent. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is our basis. If we remove that basis, which, which, which is essentially what we're saying in this episode, if we remove that basis, then we don't have a foundation to say that these books are canonical. Th- th- there is problems. There is problems that we face if if we rest it on the consensus of 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 critical scholarship, or if we put it in the authority of the church, um, it raises questions. If if that's how we understand it, then we don't have a solid basis. We don't have a truly solid basis mm-hmm. because it makes it an enterprise of men. It makes it a work of men that is reliant and determined, re- reliant on and determined by men Mm -hmm. and men change we aren't we are not eternal and in fact we are often very fickle we 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 change our beliefs all the time Mm. but if it rests in the character of an unchanging eternal omnipotent god who has purposed to expose his people to his word to write it and to preserve it then we have a foundation and and that's part of the model that we're going to be that we're going to be talking about now, the model we believe is the uh, the best model for understanding canonicity, for understanding what makes the books of the Bible canonical and what establishes the canon is referred to as the self-authenticating model. Um, and it's going to have the idea that, that all of the previous models have missed or have thrown out, and it's that the books are inherently canonical in themselves. Mm-hmm. They function as God's word um, and are understood that way immediately as they're written, and they presuppose the character of God. One thing you notice in the Bible is the Bible never makes an apologetic argument for God and his character. It assumes it on every page. It's presupposed on every page. Um, there's no description or, or argument to convince you that God is indeed who he says he is. It's presupposed on every page. The, the Bible opens as in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Mm-hmm. It is presupposed. God is always seen in his word. Um, and that's essentially what this view, the self-authenticating model, is arguing. And, and the, really, if we're understanding the canon, if, if we want to understand which books are in the canon, why would we throw out the internal evidence of those canonical books when trying to understand the canon? We need to ask, what type of insight does the Bible give us about the nature of the canon? And what we're going to see, and we've already talked about this too, but but the Bible is very clear that at all points, 
there is no argument to be made, but this is clearly God's word, God speaking to his people, and it has the very authority of God. And God speaks through men his word. Mm-hmm. And we don't need to learn that evidentially. You know, we don't we don't need to ascribe canonicity to the Bible based on what outside authorities say or what historical evidence says. The Bible clearly affirms that it's God word, God's word, that it has God's authority, and that God is sovereign over history, that he sends out his word for his purposes, and that he will accomplish the purposes that he has for his word. Mm-hmm. So that's really the first part. When, when we are understanding this model, there's a few different components to this model. And the first one, and again, this is, this is we're borrowing heavily from Michael Kruger, um, but the first one is that, that he puts forward is providential exposure. Right, and, and the idea is rooted in God's providence, um, in his character. God's purpose with his word is to save. John 3.17 talks about how God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God has a purpose of salvation in the world. God has intents and purposes to save people. Uh, Psalm 2 talks about the the Messiah. It says, he will ask of me and I will give him the nations as his inheritance. God God has a plan and a purpose to save the nations. We read Revelation 6 and it talks about how God or how in heaven there are a, a great and uncountable multitude of people made up from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation on earth. And in, in the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 is that is that through you all nations will be blessed. God has a purpose to save, and it is worldwide in scope. Um, And his word is his chosen instrument. Mm -hmm. His word is the instrument of salvation by which he means to save people. That is what God uses. And understanding God having that mission and providence over it, we clearly see that if God intends to save his people, if he has the power to do that, that, and he decides to use his word to do that, then he will bring it about. He will bring the gospel to people. Romans 10 talks about, you know, how are they to believe if they have not heard? And how are they to hear unless someone goes to them? It's, it talks about how we we are saved by hearing the word of Christ, the message of Christ by hearing the gospel. Romans 1.16 talks about how the gospel has the power of salvation for those who believe. And, and 2 Timothy 3.16 talks about talks about how the scriptures the scriptures make the man of God they're useful for teaching, reproof, correction, training and righteousness that the man of God may be complete. God has purposes to save and he has purposes to correct, to train in righteousness, to make men of God, women of God, complete. His word is not is, is for salvation. It's also for um, affecting our hearts and growing us in likeness to God's character. Um, I think John 10 is another just clear example of this. Mm-hmm. John 10, we have Jesus interacting with the Pharisees, um, and he's talking to the Pharisees who are very hostile to him. Um, and he says, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. This is John ten twenty six. You do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. 
I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. That is a promise from Jesus, the eternal Son of God, the one who holds the universe. Um, He upholds it with the word of his power, the one who was with God in the beginning, who is God. And he promises that the ones who the Father gives him will never be snatched out of his hand and that all of, and that his sheep will hear his voice and he knows them and they follow him. They will hear his voice. God will make his voice heard and he was going to do that through his word. He is going to do that through his word. And we've talked about Isaiah 55, 10 and 11 before as well, that God sends out his word um, and he will accomplish with it all that he pleases. So when we look at the testament, at the internal evidence, what the Bible actually says about canonicity, about the process, about the, how the Bible was written, how the Bible is preserved, how it's exposed to God's people, it is a work of God. Hmm. It is God's doing. It is, it is in, in a sense, it is God and men. Um, the Bible was written by God through men. The gospel is preached through men. God preaches the gospel through men. He accomplishes his word through, he accomplishes the purposes of his word through men. Often it's, often it's the preaching, audible mm-hmm. preaching of the gospel that accomplishes this um, for, 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 um, for every Christian though, it is an understanding of God's word in scripture. Mm-hmm. It is. Yeah. So I'll say something too, like, so we're talking about self-authenticating model. And the question we're trying to answer is how can we be sure that the Bible that we have is the word of God? And before we may do this in the next episode, we don't, we don't plan our episodes out all at, w- at one time. We kind of decide after each episode, what are we going to do? But possibly next episode, we may talk about some more of the evidence, uh, the empirical evidence you could say, but it's insufficient to start with that because you have to presuppose some things before you can even start looking at evidence. So the question, how can we know that we have the canon, the word of God, the first category that we would say, why we can say those things is because God knows himself fully and desires to save people. And salvation is knowing and loving God and being known and loved by God. That is his desire with people to save people. And he does that through revealing himself. So one of the foundations for why we can believe in the canon is because God will reveal himself. That is one of his goals with his creation. And what we've seen so far in in the other models that try to address this is that they remove that aspect. Mm -hmm. They remove that aspect and they try to argue from a different place and a different foundation. Um, And that, like we've talked about, raises some issues. We, if we're going to understand canonicity, we need to understand God's character um, and God's God's providence, His purposes to save. So that is that is one attribute. That's providential exposure. Um, another attribute is is attributes. <coughs> that's a bit redundant, but attributes of canonicity. Um, so when we're, when we talk about attributes of canonicity, essentially what we're saying is that the books of Scripture, which claim to be God's word, when when studied 
clearly possess and portray divine qualities. Mm-hmm. They have they have divine qualities that that clearly reflect that they could not have had solely human authorship. And the books reflect the character of God. A- and this is summarized very well in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, I can't remember where it's at in the confession, but uh, but I'm going to read it. It's the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, it says this. It was written a long time ago by some very, very smart theologians. Uh, it says, We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style. This is describing God's word. Mm-hmm. The majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation and the many other incomparable excellencies, the entire perfection thereof are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. So the, the, the Bible in itself, God's word, bears divine attributes internally in its pages, in its word. It, it, it clearly reveals itself to be God's word in its attributes. Um, a, as the confession describes, the eff- efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the, style, of the style, the consent of all the parts, there's no contradiction. The scope of the whole book, which is to give glory to God, uh, the discovery and consistency it makes of the only way to man's salvation. Mm-hmm. The Bible has in itself divine qualities which attest divine authorship. And if you've read the Bible, if you've studied the Bible, you understand what I'm talking about. You know that this is clearly true. If you've read the Old Testament and you've read some of the Hebrew poetry that's in there, you have seen the majesty of style that it possesses. It possesses a majesty of style. There is wonderful and beautiful poetry in the Bible. It also possesses, especially in the books of the Old Testament, a prophetic nature. It has a clear uh, nature of both both clear predictions and typologies which which show shadows of later realities that's essentially what typology is um there's an old testament type that shows a shadow of the new testament anti-type one reveals things about the other so there's typology and then there's clear predictions um and and in the book of isaiah and in many of the books of the prophets you see this and god clearly is speaking things and saying that they will come to pass before they happen. Mm-hmm. And in the book of Isaiah, uh, and I think it's in Isaiah 40 through 48, but God is dealing with false idols. He's dealing with the false idols of the people of Israel. And one of the things he says about them is that they have no power to speak of things before they come to pass. Mm-hmm. And clearly, what God has evidenced in his word is that he has that power. God has the power and it is shown in his word to speak of what comes to pass. There are so many inferences and references to Christ that clearly show divine authorship. What, yeah, you think of Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, mm-hmm. the Passover lamb, many, many things that are clearly foretelling of Christ. Daniel 7, for example, the Son of Man, um, many, many others. Genesis 49, 10, talking about the reign and the rule of Christ. There, there are so many. Isaiah 9, Isaiah 6, there are, it's just abundant. And what's clear when you understand those things 
is that these books have divine qualities. The prophetic nature is impossible not to see for anyone who studies them. Mm. Further, and and this is kind of building on that last point, but the the internal cross-references of the Bible, as, as the authors of the Bible write, they make reference to other parts of the Bible. And there are somewhere around 65,000 of these that that's have been crazy. counted. And that's probably, honestly, a conservative estimate because mm-hmm. there are many direct quotations, there are many direct references, and there are also extremely clear allusions. Mm-hmm. There, there are places where the wording may not be the same, but it is very clear that the New Testament author is alluding to an Old Testament passage or an Old Testament idea. So within the book of the Bible, and there's somewhere on the internet you can find a, a picture yeah, a that cool represents picture. this. It's a cool picture to look at. But there are some 65,000 internal cross-references where one book of the Bible references another book of the Bible. And it's remarkable. And, and, if, and if you have a good understanding of the Old Testament and you read the New Testament, you can see this really clearly. The New Testament authors are absolutely steeped <coughs> in, in Old Testament theology and it's consistent, but they know the Old Testament so well that when they write, they're not writing something new. They're not creating new things and new ideas, but they're showing that God's word has always said this. Mm-hmm. Jesus talks about how all the scriptures speak of him. Um, I, w- I was fortunate enough to, at, at the, the place I work at, at, at the Genesis program, I was fortunate enough to speak at their chapel the other day, and the, the topic I decided to do was Jesus from the Old Testament. And it was it was uh, it was a lot of fun to actually look at, but you can know everything you need to know about Jesus from the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. You can know about his birth, where he came from. Um, you can know about his life, his appearance. Some in Isaiah fifty-three, he had no appearance or, or majesty that we should behold him. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can know about his perfect life, his perfect death. You can know about his resurrection; it's clearly taught, uh, and you can know about his establishing of a kingdom. Uh, that will be everlasting, an everlasting kingdom, kingdom and a dominion that have, will have no end. Isaiah nine six talks about the the increase of his gov- of the increase of his government. There will be no end. You can know everything you need to know about Christ clearly from the Old Testament. The 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 the, the Bible in itself, the books of the Bible, testify that they are God's word by the divine attributes that they possess. Yeah, Th- yeah. I'd say like okay. You give a bunch of stuff there. If the if the one thing that you remember from the attributes of canonicity that point to the scriptures being the word of God, the message of salvation is completely different and could not have been made up by man. The message of salvation from the scriptures is that man sinned and hated God and God came and died for them so that they could be brought back into relationship with God. There is no other idea of salvation that comes close to that. Every other idea of salvation is man works their way to God. They work to be in right standing before God. And that is not the message of the Bible. And man, <laughs> that is the stupidest way to salvation from the me- point of view of men. And this is kind of, again, what... Paul talks about in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians. It's foolishness to man, and it's proven, it's shown to be the wisdom of God, mm-hmm. how people are saved. Yeah, the cross is folly mm-hmm. to him to Him that is perishing, but to us who are saved, it is Christ the power of God. It is completely opposite of, of all the man-made systems of religion 
um, where man is at the center and man earns the favor of God in some fashion. Mm-hmm. And, and basic basic human religion carries the idea that that God saves himself and reconciles himself before God. And, and Christianity clearly portrays something different, which is that God authored salvation and accomplished salvation. Mm-hmm. God, the the source of salvation is in God Himself. Mm-hmm. He's the one who did the work, um, and it, and we receive it. And that is another thing that is a clear testament uh, that this was not a creation of man, but an authorship of God. Yep. In, in fact, the the Bible at every place, despite its being written by human authors, does a great <laughs> deal actually to diminish the view of man yeah. and to exalt the Does view a of God. Job of it. Yeah. <laughs> As the Westminster confession of faith says, <coughs> the scope of the whole, the scope of the whole book of the Bible, the purpose of it is to give glory to God. Mm-hmm. When humans create religion, the scope of it is to give glory to man. It's to give glory to man, or it is to outcast the, and diminish the non-adherence of its religion and exalt the adherence of its religion. It gives the glory of man to its own special group. But the but the Bible gives glory to God. It diminishes man, puts him in his rightful place, gives glory to God, and shows actually God's love, mercy, and grace to men, mm-hmm. which is results in the praise and the exaltation of God. That is another significant evidence um, that that the the word of God is attested by its divine attributes. Um, The last one, I think we're getting a little long here on time. We're long. Yeah. But the last one, uh, the internal testimony of the Holy spirit. And this is another one. This is another clear doctrine that arises from within the canon itself and not from outside the canon. Mm -hmm. This is something that that the Bible clearly teaches um, that when we, when we remove the Bible as the foundation, we don't have this. We don't have this um, to inform our understanding of canonicity. So the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit, this is the last one that we'll, co- that we'll cover. Um, here's the idea. The Holy Spirit, which the, the Bible teaches, indwells every believer in Christ, mm-hmm. every genuine believer in Christ. Uh, Romans 8 says, if you do not have the Spirit of Christ, you do not belong to Christ. Every genuine believer in Christ has the Holy Spirit indwelling them that's given them a new heart, a new spirit, regenerated them. They are born again. Um, the Spirit of God gives us internal testimony that when we read the Bible, it has the attributes of God, it has divine character, and that it is God's very word. Again, John 10 says, My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. It becomes clear to the believing Christian that when you read the words of Jesus on the page, you do not read the words of just a first century Palestinian Jew. You read the words of the eternal second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, divine. And when you read the rest of the book of the Bible, I mean, uh, you know, you get at this red letter thing, mm-hmm. um, all the books or all all the words are God's words. Mm-hmm. And when you read them um, a, as a believing Christian with the, with the tes- internal testimony of the Holy Spirit, you understand that this is God's word. And going back to that same clause from the Westminster Confession, they actually finish that that clause with this. 
they talk about the divine attributes of God or the divine attributes of the word of God attesting to its being God's word. Um, and they finish by saying this yet, notwithstanding our, f- our full persuasion and assur- assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. So we clearly understand um, that in order to see, to, to perceive and to know and have assurance that, that what we read is God's word, that, that the Holy Spirit helps us and testifies to us that that's what we're doing, mm-hmm. that that's what we're doing. And this, this is not to say that anybody can't go to a Bible and understand its meaning, that any person can't go to a Bible and, and understand the basic thing that it's putting forward. Mm-hmm. This is to say that without the Spirit of God, you can't see the divine attributes of God fully. You can't understand that it's God's word. The Spirit of God gives us assurance and testifies to our hearts that the words that we read in the pages of the Bible are the very words of the true God. The Spirit testifies to us that when we read the pages of the Bible, God is speaking. And again, this is going to point back to our, our earlier argument and, and the contrast that the Bible makes between the natural man, the man in the flesh, those are words that Paul uses, those are biblical words, the natural man, the man in the flesh, the man that doesn't have the spiritual, the, the Holy Spirit of God and the spiritual man. And again, this doesn't mean to say that someone can't see the text, understands what it means, but the person with the Spirit of God, the Word of God testifies to them that what they're reading is God's Word. Um, let's look at, let's look at some scriptures. Romans, Romans 8 is going to be one that has a lot of contrast. Um, between the natural man and the, and the spiritual man. Romans 8, 5 uh, talks about the man in the flesh and the man in the spirit. It says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. There is a fundamental difference in nature, in very nature, between the one who's in Adam and the one who's in Christ, the one who's in the flesh and the one who has the spirit. The one in the flesh cannot submit, does not, does not submit to God's law and cannot please God. And in Romans 8.14, it says, All who are led by the spirit are spirit of God, are sons of God, it says that you did not receive this spirit uh, to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And in, in verse 16, it says, The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. The spirit of God in Romans 8, it's the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Abba is the Aramaic word for father. The spirit causes us to cry out to God as our father, to know that God has adopted us into his family, to give us assurance of that. And in verse 16, it says that that same spirit, the Holy Spirit of God himself, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. It gives an internal testimony to our spirit, to our hearts, that we are children of God adopted by God and belong in his family, members of his family, that we can call God our father and we can 
assume all that that implies. We can assume all that it implies that God is our loving and heavenly Father. Romans 8.26 says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words. Verse 27, And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. God's Spirit testifies to his people that when we read our, our Bible, that that it is God's word. It, te- it, it gives internal testimony to us that we are adopted and we belong in the family of God. Um, yeah, it, there's a clear, it, it, we, we can't, it's important that we don't miss that. Mm-hmm. It's important that we don't miss that. Uh, if when we talk about scripture and we talk about having assurance that these are God's words, we can't base our assurance of these are God's words by how much we know of historical evidence. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, uh, for for the Christian, you know, for, for the for the Christian in India or in Africa or wherever they exist in the world, you don't need to have a knowledge of history to know that this is God's word. Mm-hmm. You don't need to have some abundant knowledge of the historical evidence of, of first century Judaism and and ancient Near East culture to know that this is God's own word. Mm-hmm. The Spirit of God testifies to the heart of God's people that this is God's word. Um, and that's important to understand. And these other models, when they when they they remove these things, they remove the inherent canonicity of the books themselves, and and they 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 take away the assumptions that the Christian has, um, what the Bible teaches that God is providential, that He will expose His people to His church to His word, that He has purposes to save, He has purposes for His word and what it will accomplish, and that He will accomplish them. Um, they they rid they rid and remove the clear divine attributes of god that attest to the fact that it is god's very word and they remove the clear teaching of the bible which presupposes the internal testimony of the holy spirit which Mm -hmm. assures us of our adoption into god's family um, and assures us that what we are reading is the very word of god and it assures us that the message it assures us that the message of the cross is the power of God and the wisdom of God to those who are being saved. Though it may be foolishness to the world, it is the wisdom and the power of God to those who are saved. And this the Spirit of God works in our hearts to show us this. It does not tell us of, of subjective feelings that we have. It's This isn't Mormonism where you get a burning in your bosom and it gives you assurance that that the Book of Mormon is true. Mm. It does not assure us of subjective feelings. It assures us of the objective divine attributes of God mm. and the objective divine attributes of his word. And that is is how we must understand the canon. Mm-hmm. We cannot remove what the Bible te- clearly teaches to understand what are the books of God. We cannot remove the doctrine of God's providence we cannot remove the doctrine of, of clear um, divine attributes of Scripture, and we cannot remove the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. Those things are what gives us assurance that when we read God's Word, it's God's Word. Not the historical evidence, not the community that tells us so, but those things. And those things rest on God's character. They are unchanging, immutable, um, and God does 
and will accomplish them. They rest on on his character. Mm-hmm. So some closing thoughts. Uh, I know this is a bit of a long episode, um, but I, we, we think it's important to understand these things. We think it's important to have a foundation for why we believe that the Bible is the word of God, why we believe that we have the right books um, here. And the reason we started with this series is to do that. Mm-hmm. We want to build a foundation for I mean, our podcast and other things that we say and for you as listeners to understand and to clearly see that that we start with the scriptures. Mm -hmm. We start there. We do not, do not start from somewhere else to get to the scriptures and then argue from the scriptures. We start from the scriptures. We start from the character of God. That's where we start. Do not go outside of that. So some closing thoughts. Um... I think we're going to do probably another episode talking about some of the historical evidences for the canon. Um, I also want to touch on uh, some of the evidence about the Apocrypha, about uh, the the books that are contained in the Roman Catholic Bible. Um, So we'll try to probably get that out sometime soon. Um, But what we want to do, closing this episode, we want to encourage you guys um, to study your Bibles. Mm -hmm. Study Scripture. Know the Word of God. Know the faith that you believe. And share it. Mm-hmm. Have confidence in it. Be willing to share with people. Christians are called to be missionaries where they're at. Um, Christians are called to have a love for their neighbor, a love for the lost that includes the desire to see people know Christ. Mm-hmm. If you're a Christian and you have no desire to see people know Christ, if you are around lost people and you have no desire to see them know Jesus, that is a problem. Mm-hmm. That is a major problem that you need to look in the mirror and consider. We are called to do that. Um, the Bible clearly teaches that. Um, what we also want to encourage is that this knowledge that you have, we don't want to give knowledge or, or to possess knowledge to be used to win arguments or, or, or to be used for ill intent purposes. Use this knowledge with love and gentleness and respect for all people that are made in the image of God. Use this knowledge not to win arguments, but to share the gospel uh, to have assurance of your faith and to be encouraged um, by God's purposes to save the nations, to save people of all tribes, tongues, and nations, and, and his using of his <coughs> word to do that and his using also of people. So be encouraged. We also encourage you, uh, anyone who is listening to this that is not active in participating in a, in a local church that is a Bible-believing local church that preaches God's word, um, we cannot stress enough how important it is to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, Christi- Christianity, what, what God has, God has corporate purposes. He has corporate purposes in his word. He has corporate purposes in redemption. He, d- he is not intending just to, just to save people in individually and apart from each other, but he's intending to, to build a kingdom, mm-hmm. a kingdom of, of people. Um, made up of all tribes, all tongues, and all nations. God has corporate purposes. And the body of Christ is meant to function as a whole and together. Um, The idea of isolated Christians um, should be an extreme anomaly. Mm -hmm. Living a private life of Christian faith should be an absolute extreme anomaly. We cannot stress how important it is to be in a local church, Mm -hmm. um, to be involved with believers, and to be involved with God's people. We cannot stress that enough. 
So that is going to be it for this episode. We thank you guys for listening. Hopefully you will come back and listen to our next ones. And if you haven't listened to what we've put out previously, we encourage that you would go back and do that. Uh, Thanks, guys. We will see you again. See you guys.